Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 442 of the podcast. It's March 2nd, 2022. My guest today is Crystal Davis. We're going to be talking about a number of things, including courageous leadership. We're going to be talking about supply chains and the effects of the pandemic and thinking about supply chains in a post-pandemic world. So for links uh, to Crystal's website and her work and more, you can look in the show notes in your podcast app, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 442. Thanks for listening. Again, our guest today is Crystal Davis. She is a strategy consultant, an executive coach, a speaker, and a podcast host. She was a podcast guest here in this series, episode 363, April 2020, which seems like forever ago. We were a little bit into this pandemic times, and that episode we talked about the business impact of COVID. So before I tell you more, first off, Crystal, thank you for being here. Welcome back. It's awesome to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to, you know... uh, look back a little bit um, of, you know, and, and ask for Crystal's thoughts and reflections on how things played out, the role of leadership, um, not just at the beginning of the pandemic as things have played out. Uh, we're, as we're recording this uh, February 11th, 2022, we're not quite uh, to the end of it. Maybe we see light at the end of the tunnel, but we're going to talk about the supply chain impacts that we're still de- still dealing with and uh, all sorts of other topics today. So Crystal is the founder, CEO, and principal lean practitioner at her firm, The Lean Coach, Inc. Her website is theleancoachinc.com. Her podcast is Lead Lean with Crystal Y. Davis. So I encourage you to to check that out. And we we share a number of things in common. Crystal and I are both bachelors in industrial engineering Mm -hmm. graduates. We both have MBAs, and she has a lot of experience um, with Lean business systems. I, I want to ask uh, about that later on. Um, Crystal has worked domestically and internationally in uh, automotive and healthcare manufacturing, consumer packaged goods industries. She's done a lot of work in logistics and supply chain. She's trained and coached globally in operational excellence um, at various levels of different organizations. And final thing, and I'm just kind of skimming from, you know, highlights and key phrases from, from your bio, but, you know, it says you use uh, the Socratic teaching approach to engage, yeah. captivate, and add value. So I've jotted that down. If we have time, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about using the Socratic method. <laughs> it really, uh, it, it wears a lot of people thin, but it works. <laughs> well, that's part of what we will be able to talk about later. So let's leave that as a teaser. There are, there's good and bad, or I, I, I shouldn't be saying, I should be asking. So yes. later, I'll ask you open-ended questions about the Socratic method later. So <laughs> but we, we've got a, we've got a full agenda for us here. How's that? We do. We do. So, you know, again, back in April, 2020, almost two years ago, we had a conversation about leading in COVID times, um, as you had framed it, shifting from uh, crisis mode. I think we were, right. April 2020 was still definitely crisis. Still mode. definitely crisis, yeah. To survival mode, to recovery. 
open and big open-ended question here. Like, you know, I'm curious to hear some of your reflections on both the crisis mode. How how long do you think that was until we shifted into kind of surviving in that new normal? So for for uh, I'll say for a lot of like um, CPG companies, it felt like the crisis may have been six months, six to eight months. And, you know, you can definitely tell that they started to find their groove because people weren't panicking in in terms of of buying or being concerned about things on the grocery store shelves. People started setting minimum quantities and people started to get into a rhythm and trust that the supply chain was going to respond. And whether they know it or not, they really started to understand that, that hoarding actually amplified the problem, right? So, and it doesn't mean that things were perfect, but you people started to find their rhythm. Um, whereas like industrial manufacturing is still to me somewhat in a crisis, uh, particularly those industries that serve more of the electronic and the automotive uh, industry where they have connected and joint kind of uh, common problems around the semiconductor. Mm-hmm. I wonder, is that a part of uh, consumer packaged goods being a little bit faster in their supply chain cycles? You know, manufacturing is dealing with many countries, slow boat rides here in California, boats being stacked up offshore. Um, Is is, is there more of of sort of a fast turn domestic flow of of, I imagine food is much more yes. domestic than manufacturing. Tell, tell us yeah, I would say for some, for some like for, for perishable food items, definitely uh, more domestic um, resources and, and resource based. Doesn't mean that they still didn't have like, you know, some um, um, core product challenges, particularly those things that were related to commodities like aluminum and so forth and so on. However, I think they've been able to manage. And then they they also have a faster um, turnaround in rationalizing SKUs, right? They could just say, we're just going to talk, talk, talk. Mm, I can't even talk today, Mark. We're going to just tackle our top 20, right? And, and not even produce those other things. And so it's a little bit easier. Not in, not, not in every case, but it's a little bit easier. So if you go to the grocery store and you've seen your main staples and that's kind of all you've seen, then you know that's the decision that they made. So let's say uh, a producer of, I'm going to just pick a brand that has had a lot of like flavor differentiation, like Oreos. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are all these different oddball flavors of Oreos. A company like that might say, you know what, we're, we're going to focus our resources and simplify the yep. business to like plain Oreos and, and the maybe a couple other kinds. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. a time to be introducing more oddball flavors. Kind of correct. Correct. Good lesson and you can tell, right? Yeah, you can tell like around Christmas time, they were able to shift mm-hmm. more into a few oddballs. So you you definitely can see that that was part of the strategy. Yeah. Did, did you see a shift in some cases of, of trying to produce more locally as a way of addressing some of the uncertainties between illness spreading around the world and, and, and long supply chains and ports and things like that? Now, I can't, I can't say that personally with, with my clients that I saw that, but I did, um, I actually attended a, a supply chain um, summit 
and there was an executive there. Uh, I won't call the company name, but in her, in the CEO, in her presentation, she talked about how they did this analysis of their their vendor risk. And in her case, their vendor risk was the vendors in their backyard in close proximity. And that could or could not have some relation to the closer in proximity you are, probably the more just in time. And they may or may not have had as much, say, emergency stock available. But they, but that was, you know, something they started to dig into. And it doesn't mean that just in time doesn't work, right? It just means that you've got to readjust your your stocking capabilities around your safety stock, and either the 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 pace or frequency in which you get product, or just decide to take the inventory up and right size it for the now times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, this notion, and we probably shook our heads at the same articles during the Ooh, pandemic yeah. about, oh, look, this shows just in time doesn't work. And then what they're describing in the article is quite literally a slow boat from China. And like, well, to me, just in time, a better reflection of that would be, let's say, in San Antonio, where Toyota has a lot of their suppliers, like kind of literally in the same building. Mm-hmm. That That is just in time. And, and a lot of these articles really, really miss that point. They're, they they're criticizing that. something. Yeah. But I would say, well, they're, they're, they, they could say these long, slow global supply chains um, can, can be risky. Right. Is really the, 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 the issue. That's the issue, right? And then determining what do you have onshore and what do you have offshore as a matter of your risk portfolio rather than, you know, some concept that you want to diminish, right? Now, what I will say about that really quickly is that a lot, one of the levers that I have been talking about on the radio show and with clients is there is an opportunity to reevaluate your your portfolio and do so in a couple of different ways. One is rep, one is of course the longer lead time items and if you can substitute in in some of your your lower uh SKUs where you have all of the components right? It's great substitution. You keep revenue flowing. You keep your client happy or your customer happy. And then secondly, just determining in this world that we're, we're living in now, do you really need a thousand SKUs? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So there's, there's product complexity risk, there's supply chain risk. And, yes. you know, these things keep coming, whether it's a pandemic or not, it's, um, you know, a tsunami that hits Japan and knocks some key auto suppliers offline. It's, a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal, right? Had nothing to do with the pandemic, I don't think. Um, like you know, right now, well, you know, you, you've got the ports being clogged up for different reasons, and and even right now, this week um, in the news, as we're recording this, um, you know, you you have um, I don't know what the right word is, social disruption. You have truckers in Canada blocking mm-hmm. accesses access to bridges, which has knocked some auto plants. Offline, not just in Canada, but in Michigan, Toyota mm-hmm. and Kentucky mm-hmm. announced they're dropping some shifts. So the more complex the supply chain is and the longer the supply chain is, there there are more things that could go wrong. That's right. That's right. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, did I don't know if you saw this the funny post I had about the Suez Canal. 
<laughs> no, I don't know what was that. There was this TikTok video where where they created this little bridge for for it to jump over. <laughs> is that a free? Is that a free Willy reference? It was Back pretty to that much. Movie? Okay. <laughs> It's just like, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, to your point, I think the other thing about the pandemic it, is that it has brought so many social and and um, social impact issues, but also like mental health issues, burnout that leaders are having to face at unpre- unprecedented levels, right? And they have to figure out how do you lead people through this level of complexity and uncertainty and where no, no end is in sight. Yeah. It, it, it seems like that some days and some of that may depend on, you know, where you are in the U S or where you are in the world. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk more about leadership, you know, so back in April, 2020, when we did the episode, um, you, you talked about the need for what you framed as courageous leadership. So maybe, you know, first as a recap, I mean, what, 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 what would be an example or a definition either way of, of courageous leadership? And, and what, what are some examples maybe that you saw of that during the pandemic that was helpful? No, great, great question. So back then, you know, we were talking about um, this notion where leaders were still struggling with how to measure productivity. Uh, some of them had some practices that were very much uh micromanagement practices and things that just illustrated that they didn't trust their workforce. And then there have been a litany of conversations about whether or not remote people working from uh, working remotely are more productive, less productive, are they gaming the system, so forth and so on. And so what I'll say is, uh, particularly in my space where manufacturing for a lot of people never really stopped, it didn't cease, it may have, they may have scaled back, um, I would say that I have seen leaders get more and more patient, um, and I'm using that word loosely, right, patience, but demonstrate patience and empathy, mm-hmm. knowing that, um, you know, one positive COVID test can impact multiple a department and their families, right? And so there's this greater focus on, okay, uh, um, oh my God, you tested positive to, okay, you tested positive, you know, who have you been around? There's their protocols in place that respect people's privacy, but also respect the safety of those that they they may have been around. And there's just this patience of, well, yes, uh, our output is is important, but so are our employees and their safety. Yes. Right. And so that for me, I think is a big one is the shift that um, typically when a family is impacted by a health challenge, it's isolated to that family. Now you have your broader sense of family in terms of the shift you work on, the department you are in, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've seen a lot of resilience, a lot of empathy, uh, a lot of open communication. Um, and it's it parallels to me in comparison for what I've seen for what you hear and see on the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there've been so many opportunities for people to, to practice what Toyota would frame as respect for people. That's right. Or respect for humanity. Yes. Empathy, 
um, you know, trying to, and I, I think a decent definition of empathy is like the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, whether that's family stresses related to COVID or, you know, schools or childcare or balancing the, I've, I've done a couple of podcasts in a row where like, you know, a cat wandered into the screen. I'm like, yes. that's the least disruptive thing that, that could happen because cats are quiet. They just want to get in the way. But, you know, we, I think, you know, hopefully people have been maybe not, not just patient, but understanding, empathetic to yes. what people are dealing with just to navigate and, and yeah. get by, whether that's related to COVID, um, summer of 2020, you know, thinking of how different people were reacting, you know, to, to the murder of George Floyd and, oh, yeah. and, and, and how that could be upsetting to different people in different ways and Absolutely. to show some grace and to be empathetic um, about that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot going on. And, uh, but back to that point of like, I, I, you know, there's that phrase that's translated sometimes as respect for humanity, yes. which I've heard people say is a richer way of describing it, of realizing that, you know, we, 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 we are full complex human beings and, and that's who you've hired to be part of your team. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to respect and honor that and realize like, you know, we're, we're, we're not robots. Right. Even those of us like you and I who have technical yes. educations and may be quite logical that we're we're full, complete people. So I'm I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts or reflections on you know leaders embracing that in different ways the last two years. What what have you seen or what would you hope to see more of? Yeah, so so what I've seen is um you know being more open to allow people to have a safe environment to share. Um, that they are, that they may not be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and also to share in a way that suggests that I'm not holding you responsible for the fact that I may not feel okay, but I at least want you to give me some grace and find a way to have a conversation to either give me the time that I need or invite me into a conversation and say, well, okay, understand that but from a work perspective, what do you feel that you are capable to sustain during this period, right? So I think that's I think that's one um, that I have seen. I, I have a, a very good friend of mine, and um, she had invited me in to just have a talk with her um, her team, and then her boss invited me to have a team have a, a talk with his team, you know, just to talk about some of those things, and you know. Uh, here in Georgia, we had the Ahmad Aubrey case right. recently, right? right. And right. then, you know, now in Minnesota, we've got Amir Locke. And mm-hmm. so through that, she's the only African-American on the team. Through that, she's been able to now communicate, you know, very clearly to her boss, I'm not okay. And he under- he's he has a better understanding. I did this exercise with them. Uh, and I asked all of the people in the room how they would respond to the situation. And I asked her not to respond. And so they did. And then I asked her after they all shared, I said, now you please share how you would respond. And she said, and, and her response completely shocked all of them because they had never walked in her shoes as an African-American woman. And so, but that taught them, you know, how to be able to position. It's not about understanding and and having to take up that ball 
but it taught them that their perception and perspective was extremely different because they were coming from a different place. So, uh, so that's probably the most courageous thing that I've seen is to create an environment where someone can say they're not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be courageous for somebody to share that. And it is the, you know, what, what I think what we would not want to see, you know, sort of, you know, a disrespectful response, which unfortunately, you know, I saw some of yeah. this in uh, even on LinkedIn, which is, you know, a yeah. quote unquote professional social network of somebody sharing their pain. And then, uh, you know, I'm old enough, old ish. I'll say, you know, an old white dude, old straight white dude like me basically yeah. saying, well, that's not a workplace topic. That's unprofessional. What's that have to do? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't diminish. I think it comes back to respect for people, right? Don't diminish someone else's uh, feelings or their, their, their need and their right to share how they're doing, because that's part, that's, that is their workplace. That's them. Exactly. Right? I mean, and, and let's be clear, right? The moment that we needed to work from home and we invited our colleagues into our homes virtually, the lines of, you know, workplace and home became very blurry, very gray. But I do think that, you know, what, what this person may have been trying to say is like, like my generation and above, and I'm over 50, my generation and above, we were just, it was ingrained in us that you kept personal things out of the workplace as much as you could. And you just focused on the job. And the generation younger, uh, the generations younger than me are just like, look, I can't focus. Something's not right. I need a mental health day. And I applaud them for being able to say that. Because I can remember so many things that I carry, particularly being the only African-American woman in lots of spaces that I carry that had I not discovered my authentic self and how to really communicate that to people, that it could have broke me. It could have really discouraged me from wanting to pursue other opportunities, wanting to even pursue moving up the career ladder. And I think that happens to a lot of people. So. Yeah, so th- that to me is is part of what I see in terms of courageous leaders. I see them learning and finding their way. And then the last part that I would add is that I see, I just did this on my, sh- this, uh, talked about this on my show, um, Agile C-Suite Leadership, right? And those executives are now starting to exhibit the behaviors that uh, require organizations to be more open to change and designing new solutions and testing and so forth and so on. So I'll say that's the second part that I'm excited about and that I'm looking forward to more of. And in this article that I referenced, this is a Harvard Business Review article from 20, from May, June, 2020. They, the CEO talks about how frustrated he and his C-suite leaders would get when they were run against these, these bureaucratic brick walls. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, we've got to change this. And I was like, oh, thank God you get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You get it. But I'm looking forward to more of that. Yeah. yeah. Th- these are, you know, important questions about, you know, trust and respect. Um, you know, I hate to see or, you know, read reports of companies that responded to this work from home era with uh, distrust of, 
like spy more more spying software on their computers or you know things that you know that that's that's one response but like I, I'm thinking back this is a different scenario um and I, th- I think sometimes we could say maybe it's courageous when a leader does something that the other organizations aren't doing based on some sort of principle right so uh, one example this is going back probably a decade ago Paul Levy was the CEO of a hospital system in Boston. And this is as a, you know, a time when smartphone use was proliferating and the, the trust factor around how people use the internet was one thing on the computers and the workstations. They, they could block Facebook. Right. And so it's a time waster. It's unprofessional or, you know, whatever. Okay. Fair enough. It's company computer, your rules, your workplace. But then Paul Levy kind of took a stance. He said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to play this game of chasing, because if you block Facebook, then where do people go? You're going to block so YouTube. Fine. You're going to block yeah. Reddit. What are you going to block? And, and Paul said, well, you know, people, people have smartphones. If, if people are going to spend time on Facebook during the day, they could take their smartphone into the bathroom. Right. And, and he framed it. He said, the problem is not the technology, the problem is not quote unquote wasting time. He's, you know, he framed it. That, that's an engagement problem. Yeah, exactly. That's a workplace culture problem that we need to address in a, in a more indirect way. So he was probably one of the few hospitals, even to this date, when he was CEO anyway. I wonder what they do now. But like, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not going to block Facebook. We trust you. We're going to yeah. be responsible. We're going to create an environment where you want to do your best work, and that probably doesn't involve time on Facebook. Exactly. Exactly. And they probably got an excellent response from people. Yeah. yeah. Some people, you know, and, and look, if, if people are needing a, 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 a temporary break or a diversion or something like I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a middle ground where there's a lot of problems with Facebook. I don't know if a couple of minutes on Facebook is therapeutic. <laughs> maybe leave that to each person to decide, but like a more recent example during the pandemic here though, I think you would appreciate Crystal. Um, Eric Dixon, who is currently the CEO at UMass Memorial Health in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh I had a chance to interview him in the Habitual Excellence podcast series. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes where they were one of the few hospitals in the country, I think, to come out and do this very Toyota-like thing of no furloughs, no layoffs. That was their mandate. And, And they held to it. Through the pandemic, and and I had a chance to interview Eric kind of early in the pandemic when they had announced that, and then afterwards, and he said that was the best thing they ever did. The yeah. loyalty, yes. the the the, yes. the the impact on the culture was was enormous. Right, I, th- I thought that was really courageous. Right. No, I absolutely love that, and and I love something that you said. You said the, the, that these people made a decision based off of principles. Right. And I and that takes us back to to the Toyota way, their 14 principles. And I think that's one of the things that more companies need to adopt. Many companies talk about vision, mission. Right. And then they jump right to business. They need to understand the core principles that lead and guide how they make decisions, particularly in the tough times. Yeah. Well, tell us more about that. Like what happens when there's pressure in your experience? So, I mean, when there's pressure, you cave to the the person or the group that has the loudest voice, whether it's your shareholders, whether it is your your competition, and you start to then try to chase them, 
or it's that person, whether they have a position or title in, in the organization that has influence, right, to, to, to either stall buy-in or, or, or strike up a protest. So it really is about establishing as a core. So you think about an organization as, as you would a person. We have our core values. And our core values as a human being are the things that we reflect on when we need to make a decision to do something that we know we shouldn't be doing, or, you know, if we do something that we know we shouldn't be doing to deal with the consequences and find our way back. But it's that 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 keeps us grounded. So when organizations have that and you have, you know, hundreds or thousands of employees, you can drive them to that set of principles as the thing that grounds us. If a, if a manager has to make a tough decision and it's aligned with the core values, that gives them the courage to make that decision because they can say, well, I did it because this is who we, this is who we are and how we operate. I'll never forget, um, quick lean story. We were on a, at a, at an IISD conference, Lean Six Sigma conference. We had a tour scheduled at Toyota in San Antonio. It was going to be my first in my entire career, Toyota plant tour. We get to the center. They're checking us in. We watch our little safety video. We're looking at all the, the memorabilia. And the plant manager comes in and says, yeah, put on a card for the whole plant. Wait, it, it cut out a little bit. The plant manager said what? The plant manager came in and he said, we had to pull the end on for ah. the entire plant. They had a problem. They had gone through their process of you know, uh, immediate countermeasure brought the, the, the Kaizen team in. They tried to keep it going. It just didn't work. They started to work through, um, you know, their uh, issue and realized, nope, we've got to shut everything down. And they said, we're so sorry that you've come here, but we're not going to be able to tour today. And they stuck to that. So they didn't take you through the idle factory. They, they did not take us through the idol. Not part of their standard, I guess. Not, what purpose was that? They sent everybody oh. home. Okay. Wow. So they, yeah. I mean, because you, you you would still see a lot. You would see the structure, see the structure, you and the would layout see, of the facility. The but but maybe without but, the people, it's nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people that were there, you know, of, of course you look, you're disappointed, right? So people yeah. were disappointed. I actually was telling my colleagues at the conference, I said, if they had done anything other than what we just said, <laughs> I would have been so distraught. You would have had to just bury me right on the scene because mm. I have been preaching and done and <laughs> right, the principles. Right. And I said, do you realize how many people they had to send home with mm-hmm. pay? Right. I was going to add. and uh, With I, pay? And this was in the morning. Mm-hmm. Our tour was in the morning. Yeah. And then uh, they started to explain to us that they had the limited supply with their just-in-time supplier. So they did. They wanted to be mindful of the impact on them. They didn't have a lot of room for excess storage, so they didn't want them to keep running. And and they 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 made good on it all. And I was so impressed. I was still disappointed, but I was so impressed. They honor their principle in a tough time. Because we got these lean professionals coming in. Yeah. yeah no. That's a different lesson learned, a different 
thing. Now, have you had a chance to go back or are you still no. trying to? No, I haven't. I have not arranged a tour yet. But, but you, you mentioned Toyota and um, yes, they will in, in, in periods of um, supply shortage, like this happened after the tsunami and some suppliers, some parts that still come from Japan. Mm-hmm. Even though they have all these local just in time suppliers, it shows you know the 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 kink in their complete car supply chain was this risk of what happens um, to a factory in uh, Japan being so far away um, or being a sole source or both yeah, sole source okay. um, during the Great Recession or during other times when sales have been really low. Um, I, I know for a fact that Toyota. I feel like I can say this very confidently because what the news reports and Toyota people I've talked to have said that Toyota pays people yeah. when there's no production. Like, so short term, they might say, okay, everybody go home, rest, this stinks, but you know, you're, you're not going to lose your pay for the day. Um, but then if it goes on for weeks or months, they will pay people to come in and do improvement work. Yes, exactly. Cross training. Toyota's paid people to go build Habitat for Humanity homes, which is a leadership development activity, not just helping the community. And those exact same circumstances, um, General Motors will put people on short-term layoff. Yeah, yeah, I know. And and, and I bet, and I haven't had the chance yet to go look at articles. So here we are in February, 2022, trucks can't get across the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit near where I grew up. And um, I, I, I guarantee you, Toyota is paying people, GM, yeah, maybe probably. probably putting people in short-term layoff. And, yeah. you know, you can frame that in different ways. You could frame it as respect for people. You could frame it as long-term thinking, you know, in the loyalty that would be engendered by sticking with your employees in those times and, and saying, I, I don't view you just as this cog in a machine right. to cast aside the minute I don't need you. Right. Right. You know, that that uh, brings up a good point there. I don't know if you're following closely, but there's so many debates about what's happening with the truckers and trying to blame the truckers and, um, you know, and then the truckers picking, doubling down on their side about how valuable they are to the supply chain. And just instead of just figuring out how can we meet in the middle? And then there was, of course, the, the court case about the one trucker that the sentence was just it was just insane. What I, I didn't hear about this. So there what, was a there was a happened? there was a trucking accident. Uh, well there there was an accident on the highway and there was a bypass ramp that the trucker as he realized I think he realized it maybe too late that there was an accident. He wasn't able to to take the the bypass to break you know to be able to to, to break stop. and yeah. he wasn't able to to stop and it just you know caused a, a worse accident and uh, when he went to court, he, the charges against him were just atrocious. I mean, it was like a hundred years for, um, by definition, an accident. For an accident. Well, yeah. the, they, but then there's this question of whether well, so, well, he was being reckless. Yeah, and they were saying that he should have, you know, and right Monday morning quarterbacks can tell you how to win the game, <laughs> right? So, but my point is, I think it's one of those situations where we've politicized um, the issue, and at the same time, 
Nobody's talking about when a truck driver shows up at a port and has to sit there three days and he's losing three days of income for his family because the port is slow, right? Or they can't get on. So it's 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 a mixed bag of, again, where if you could just come to the table and have a, a conversation based off of some core principles around, uh, you know, the safety for the drivers and, and everyone around them and also uh, respecting the fact that you can't just treat them anyway because they're here to pick up goods and treat them like, well, you're just another cog in the wheel. You just pick up these boxes and drive them where they need to go. And I, and I think it's difficult. I mean, there are times when, you know, the arguments or debate or people, it's like, it's my camp versus your camp. Yeah. And, and but th- there are times when there, there, there is a conflict in deeply held principles. Mm-hmm. And that becomes really difficult to navigate. So let's say looking at workplaces requiring vaccination, the company could say, we are making this decision based on principles involving safety um, and the long-term good of the company. We want to reduce COVID outbreaks. There's a a human perspective. There's a healthcare cost. There's a disruption to the business. You know, you, you, you could make that principled stand and then somebody else might say, well, my principles say you can't tell me what to put in my that's body. That's right. That's right. It's really tough to navigate very when somebody to doesn't want to budge. Like principles can be very helpful to a company of saying they are lasting. And like as you were talking about earlier, this example of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, principles and values are scalable, like they infinitely are. scalable in a way that command and control decision-making is not. Is not, exactly. You know, but Absolutely. Um, when we've Absolutely. got still millions of people making a decision that's different than the decision I would make, um, part of my failings as a human being is, is falling into, you know, blame and othering them, if you, I don't know if that's even a word, you know. Othering. And, and 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 there, there's there's an empathy gap that I'll admit to, and, and others have talked about. Or there's empathy 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 fatigue. Yes, I think that there is also not just empathy fatigue, but there's just fatigue for the sheer number of issues that are so divisive in our world. So I, you know, I have chosen or opted to disconnect from. Uh, from cable news. And at this point, I've even disconnected somewhat from local news because I'm just kind of, I've reached my limit of this consistent bad news or replaying these these stories of what's happening in the world um, and, and the, the, the level of details about these stories rather than talking about change. So I've just gotten to this place where it's not that I want to ignore things that happen in the world. I'm not, and I'm, I don't want to be ignorant to what's happening, you know, even around me locally. But I'm choosing how I receive information, and and that that helps keep me grounded, and it helps how I how I start and manage through an already heavy workload. Yeah, there's there's information, and then so there's there's a, a topic. I'm going to frame this in terms of like principles versus short term business. Mm-hmm. motives. And I think this is where it's so powerful when Toyota talks about, as you know, and a lot of our audience knows, principle number one of the Toyota way is making decisions based on the long term, even at the expense of the short term. That's correct. So the short term, I'm sure in cable news is all about the ratings numbers. Yes. 
and more and longer watching. And, you know, I, and there's a cost side where this is me not working in this industry, but it seems clear that having uh, volunteers who want publicity coming on and arguing about stuff is far cheaper than sending reporters out to report. And what, mm-hmm. regardless of the channel, like I, to, to me, it's almost like it causes mental inflammation. I don't it know does. if that's even a thing, but like I, 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 I can, you know, find, um, calmer news from, um, from other sources where I feel like it's actually people reporting news instead of just arguing. Here's someone from this side and here's someone from that side. Now go fight. And that was going to be my point, Mm -hmm. right? You said that you've got people on that, you know, that come on and give their opinion. Mm -hmm. That's not the news. That's where they're advocating for something. That's That's not necessarily news. That's right. So just give me the news. Let me make my own decision and do my own research. So, yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, there's these challenges of, you know, well, there's there's an outfit um, that sort of took over an outfit, a business, or, you know, they were taking over uh, the WGN Superstation out of Chicago, the cable channel. And um, they were they were trying to create a news network. um, Oh, gosh, it's uh, I don't watch it. Um, I have a friend who talks about it's called News Nation. Okay. Right? And they were they they were trying to take this approach of we're going to do kind of like what the news used to be, reporting news, less arguing, more fact based, and and like well you know I hope that works out for you. I, yeah. I don't, I'd have to go Google how that business how is that's doing. working. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's a matter of breaking trade offs of like this is one thing that's fascinating to me about Lean. We'll try to bring it back to Lean of like. Breaking down false trade-offs of I mean, people would say, well, we can't afford better quality. We'd say, wait a minute, time out. Yeah. Better quality actually costs less. We, we would agree. The audience would agree. But maybe there's this false trade-off of like, well, you know, people, people don't want to watch sober, serious, fact-based reporting. Yes. And like, well, maybe that, I, that could be human nature. It could be a false trade-off. Right? Yeah, I, I think there is some element of entertainment right, that people enjoy, um, and they get wrapped up in it probably subconsciously uh, and find that in the news. But I think from a mental health perspective, I also think it's something that people should check in on, right? And no judgment, that's something that you enjoy, right? Um, Yeah. But, you know, getting getting riled up, whether whether you agree with the person or disagree with them, like there's a certain fatigue that comes from being just on edge, riled up, fired up, whatever it is, right? Um, yeah, so it's yeah, like I, when you see on social media, right? People say trigger warning. I'm like, pass. Yeah. <laughs> but teach their own, right? So someone else yeah. may lean into that, and you can you can scroll on by. Um, but you know, I think you know. So yeah, I've done that same countermeasure of really limiting, if not eliminating, um, cable yeah. news viewing, unless there's like breaking news. That's that's it going on. So that that is the time then when there's often real reporting. Yeah, so, um, exactly. Exactly. Tr- truly breaking news, um, and then truly the boundaries breaking. of what gets labeled breaking news. Um, it's blurred. So, um, well, Crystal, one other thing we want to talk about today was you know, bringing it back to the supply chain yeah. challenges that are still ongoing. It still may be crisis mode. It still might be survival mode. 
Um, what, what are some of your thoughts about you know, what's going on here in 2022, what companies and leaders can and should be doing? Great question. It's a complex question. It's a complex question to answer. Uh, but but here's kind of what I see happening and what I'm hoping that we'll see more of. So, of course, I am a, an advocate for lean approaches and typically in crisis or when things are unstable, your first response or reaction from a lean perspective is to get to some level of stability before you can actually improve. And so I actually posted this question in, to our um to our uh, fellow industrial engineers in our uh, Institute of Industrial Engineers uh, group page. And I said, with everything that's going on and the sheer amount of complexity happening, should we still be so dogmatic about our approach to Lean and Six Sigma, right? Because technically there's not, well, I won't say there's not a lot, but there are several instances where things are simply not stable. But yet there's so many problems that need to be solved. And so that's one of the things that I have have kind of I've taken up this mantle with myself to learn how to be less dogmatic about uh, about how we approach certain things and just deal with it from the aspect of, well, here's the problem that we know. I don't have to have a perfect lean solution, but I have to just seek to make things better. And if there are aspects of the framework that can work in order, in sequence or out of sequence, I don't care. I literally had this argument, argument's a strong word, but I said to the person, I said, listen, here's why I'm taking this stance. I said, yes, we as lean professionals could debate how this would be done. I said, but for me, these people have been operating in crisis for over two years. Every day they show up to work trying to make it to the end of the day, feeling like they've made an impact and they can leave successful. They see red all across their KPI board every single day. That's not healthy. And I'm not going to come in and add to the stress and say, well, you've got to do your A3 first. You've got to do. No, I'm going to meet them where they are and I want to help them. If I invited in a a, a, a plumber, and I said, you know, oh, by the way, you know, this light fixture is giving me problems. Yes, he has a bunch of tools with him, but he came here for the plumbing. <laughs> he's not a licensed electrician. He's yeah. not a licensed electrician. And if he's a nice man or woman, right, they may say, well, let me take a look at it. I might could help you out. But at the end of the day, right, just stick to the problem and find the best way to help people just move forward and feel a sense of accomplishment. So that that's definitely, you know, a big challenge is how do you do lean with when things are, there's so much instability. And then the second one is this notion of digital solutions. Like one digital solution is going to save the day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and there's so many elements that come with that. How do you do lean? How, do, how can lean uh, organizations leverage digital solutions Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not about having this this dogmatic um, argument about whether or not you should do a value stream map with a pencil or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that's that's just not where we need to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, not looking for and, and this comes back to a Toyota Way principle paraphrasing of not expecting a digital solution to solve everything, solve but everything. integrating 
technologies that support your people and your process. So for those who are just listening, they don't realize, you know, on YouTube, I'm double dipping here with logos today. I have a Kinexus shirt on and I'm drinking water out of a Kinexus coffee mug. But that's that's a digital solution that even the providers of said solution at Kinexus and the founders of the company would agree. The software is something to facilitate human behavior. You don't automate problem solving. You don't automate continuous improvement. Technology may make aspects of it easier. Right. In terms of communication and visibility and things that are built on principles. Exactly. So, you know, you you could have um, like, you know, uh, different principles mapped to different technologies. Like think of like the classic suggestion box system. Right. With the locked box and their principles of like, we can't let employees see what the ideas are. Those ideas might be bad. We might need to reject those ideas. Like there's all kinds of mental models where with different mental models, you could have a bulletin board. Exactly. Transparency and mm-hmm. um, empowerment and, and participation. So, you know, people could digitize the suggestion box model and we'd say, no, 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 no. New technology off of, you could say the wrong principles or different principles, as opposed to digital solution on top of better principles. Yep, and, and better principles. That's, that's right. It's, it's, it's really mind boggling to me though, um, you know, as people throw out, throw out these, these really broad solutions, how people don't think about them holistically. How does that fit into our culture? You know, does it align with our principles? Uh, our our, our um, workers at a level where they uh, can embrace this, or do we need to reskill them, or are do we actually have people thinking, well, we need to just bring in the people who already understand this, which is a threat to the people who've been there and who've been loyal. So there's so many nuances that you have to think about when you think about doing that. And then again, what's the purpose? What is the purpose? Are we looking at digital solutions and, and data science to help bring visibility to the people who are doing the work so that they can make better decisions? Right. Yeah. So. And so back to dogma, decisions versus dogma. Like there's <laughs> supply chain dogma yep. that people will point to and lean that's maybe not even a dogma that Toyota would hold, right? So someone might say, our dogma is we only have two hours of inventory because that's lean. Like, well, you know, and there are articles recent times about, you know, Toyota stockpiled semiconductors. They're moving away from just in time. I'm like, well, no, like there, there was this LEI book from years ago that talked about uh, the practice of having a plan for every part. Every part. It doesn't mean the same plan for all right. the parts. It's a plan for each individual part and supplier. And Toyota identified risks. I'd say there there were smart principles there. Exactly. And part of the plan is to understand the risk and to right-size the inventory to minimize the impact until that risk factor has been solved or mitigated. Decisions. Decisions. They've made decisions. Decisions. I think I've told this story before. I was working with Mr. Yamada and he said, I said, oh, great. We had done, he had done this this A3 and we picked a problem that we were going to go solve. And I was like, oh, great. We have to go do the value stream map. And he's like, Crystal, mm-hmm. we know the problem. <laughs> I said, but we have to do the value stream map. <laughs> and he yeah. said, but we know the problem. 
up. And, you know, after saying that to me multiple times, <laughs> I understood <laughs> because I had been taught you have to do the value stream map. And, and I, I think there was also in, in not at that company, but at a previous company where I would have been chastised had I not done, you know, it's kind of like checking the box, right? Well, you didn't do a value sure. stream map. But I know the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Great example. So um, before we wrap up, Crystal, I want to kind of come back to a couple of things we said we're going to talk about even briefly here. Um, so, you know, how do you define a lean business system? Let's say you have a chance, you're talking to an executive at a, a conference or you're on an elevator with the CEO of a client. Crystal, what's this lean business system I've been hearing about? All right. So um, this is probably going to get me in trouble. With, with a lot of my colleagues. But for me, okay, for me, a lean business system focuses around people, process, and infrastructure, and how all of those three work in tandem. And then it has this foundation, very similar to, uh, to the lean transformation foundation that says, what are our behaviors? What are our skills? What are our competencies? What, what, are, what is our mental model around our culture? Like, what is that foundation? And then what's the gap to where we want to be? And for me, there's no endpoint destination. It's this evolution of learning who you want to become as an organization that's looking to balance people, process, and infrastructure. And, and within infrastructure, right, you have systems and you have uh, whether they're electronic or technical systems or manual systems, but you have systems and policies and procedures, right, that support how the engine churns. And then you have this foundation, this element of people where you have to build capability, you have to teach leaders, managers, supervisors, whomever in a leadership role, you have to teach them how to lead people, and you have to teach them how to create a, an environment that is open to problems being visible and provides them with the right support to attempt to just chip away at the problem continuously. That for me is how I define a lean business system. And at the core of that, you're always focused on our customers and delivering on our business objectives. Mm-hmm. So I'm... I'm with you. I didn't hear anything there that was controversial. So what 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 out of that might somebody take issue with? <laughs> Again, some of my you know colleagues that are very dogmatic about their approach. Yeah. Okay. Well, is it just is it just are they would they take issue with one part of it or just that it's articulated differently than they would say it? Well, I think it's it's probably articulated a little bit differently than they would say it. So. You know, I've worked with teams where when we start to frame up what a lean business system is to deploy across across the company, they're very focused on tools. They don't factor in leadership development. They don't factor in, you know, hosting or strategy deployment. They only focus on like I literally had someone tell me today, well, this is the I can't say I can't even say that. But anyway, they said, well, you know, we have our business plan. I'm like, well. Continuous improvement is part of your business plan. Hopefully. Hopefully. So let's not let's not split hairs here. Yeah. They're one in the same. Yeah. So, so they, and they were like, well, you know, why is the continuous improvement group talking to us about our whole shit? Or our, <laughs> like, what? 
Okay. So anyway, it's that type of thing, you know, and, and so you still, I still see a lot of colleagues talking about true lean Mm -hmm. and I'm like, those finger quotes there for those who are just listening. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) That's right. What does that mean? Yeah. And, and, and for an organization that's, that's starting or for a mature organization that might now have a, a crisis that causes them to have to take a slightly different approach. Um, you know, it's really just about how do we think about this and how does it align with, you know, who we are overall yeah. and going back to those principles, the yeah. core values. I think that's really well said. And then the other thing we we're going to talk about was the Socratic method. So let's say, okay, we're on a different elevator ride now. How, how do you explain the Socratic method and how it applies to lean work? Yeah. So the way that I explain it, um, and, and, um, you know, it's, it's related to like, you know, Socrates and, and the simplest way is to, to be able to teach in a way that, that you ask a sequence of questions that helps you as the teacher understand how the student is thinking. And so it frames up the work that the teacher then needs to do to educate, but to allow this person to arrive at things themselves. And I can say that when, when I was younger, I went overboard. So I'm, I'm one of these people, I'm, I'm either black or white, I have very little gray. And when I go to the left, I go all the way to the left. And I remember um, a dear friend of mine, I talked to him last week that I worked with, uh, he was he was an SME and he was he was working with me to learn more lean principles. And he said, Crystal, can you just answer a question? And I would say, well, Rick Harris never <laughs> answered any of my questions. And he said, but now's the time where you can just answer the question. And so I, it took me a long time to learn when it's appropriate to teach and not every moment is a teaching moment. And that there are times when I can just answer the question or direct the person that doesn't mean that I'm a command and control kind of person, right? So it's this evolution of learning the appropriate time and space. And now that I've got learned more about coaching from the essence of, of leadership coaching, not necessarily lean coaching, I'm learning to even ask permission because it's not my job to make people feel less than or put them on the spot or throw them under the bus for not knowing the answer. It's for me to, to really... Uh, find an opportunity when I have observed that they have the answer or they're close to an answer and that there might not actually be a right answer and that they need to become more comfortable with the answer that they come up with. But that's an evolution of learning. Yeah. Because yeah. as, as you were saying earlier in the episode, um, people do sometimes um get annoyed by the questions. And I've had clients even snap. Okay. I'll I'll say they snapped at me or something close to that. Or like, you know, you, you, let's say I was doing a lot of work at one point in hospital laboratories and somebody with lab director would say, look, you've done a bunch of these lean lab overhauls. Why don't you just tell us where we should put our analyzers? Like, but that's like, uh, it, that seems faster, but it's it's not going to be as sustainable. Yeah. And the your your lab is different in some ways. So so what I was teaching was principles and methods. Yep. For them to figure it out, and as painful or as awkward or as frustrated you know as they might have been, I, you know it it was for the best to hold to those principles. 
Exactly. I'm not going to speed this up by drawing the layout for you. Yeah. And like sometimes I'll use like I'll use real life uh, situations to say, right, if there's a child standing at a crosswalk and this child is about to walk out in the street and I see that there's danger uh, approaching. Now is not the time for me to say, well, did you did you look both ways? No, I need to protect the child. Right. And that's the time when you just make a decision or you inform someone about situation versus, you know, either after or when I'm talking to a child about going out, I can start to explain in a way by asking questions so that they can be thinking about how to be aware of your surroundings, why it's important to look both ways before you take a step. What happens if you uh, suddenly see a car approaching? How do you respond so that you don't freeze in the moment? Right. So you just again, it it's common sense approach to when you need to do it, except for when you start out and you're learning and you think that what you've seen other people do is how you need to do it. Right. It comes back to this question of what's scalable and what's sustainable. Hovering That's- over a child constantly their entire life and telling them when they're about to do something dangerous. It's not scalable. It's not not sustainable. And, you know, if I were standing too close to the edge of a cliff, I wouldn't want you to come up and, and say, Mark, tell me what you know about gravity. Right. Exactly. You would say, careful, that cliff edge is unstable. You need to back up. I don't know why my mental image went to me standing on the edge of a cliff. But, um, about hiking, about sightseeing, um, what have you. So, um, but yeah, there, there's, there's, a time and a place, um, yeah. you know, you would say if, if uh, back to your point with Mr. Yamada, when a fire truck shows up to a burning building, they don't need to go back. It's not the time to do root cause analysis. It's the time to contain, literally contain the problem. And it's probably not a time to sit back and, and be dogmatic. Like, well, you need to brainstorm seven possible countermeasures first. <laughs> like, No. No, let's no. put the fire out. No. Yeah. And then we can go into causal analysis and prevention. Yes, exactly. You're spot on. And, you know, I made, I made the joke about uh, when I said, you know, Rick, Rick Harris never answered any of my questions. But here's, you know, now that I have, have matured, I, know, I now know that Rick had a, a purview of how he was observing me that gave him enough intel to say, I need to ask her another thinking question or powerful question, right? And I'm sure had I maybe demonstrated some other types of behaviors, he would have told me, right? If I wasn't, if I was way off course or something like that, he would have told me. And it also takes me back to a question that I that I just asked my mentor uh, from my early days of lean. And I said, why did you um, select me um, to be one of the team members to go over to Europe and help out some some of our plants, and he said because I saw in you that you were so resilient and persistent in in figuring things out and getting it right, like working until you found a viable solution. So that showed me that you were committed and sometimes crazy <laughs> <laughs> about finding a solution to the problem and helping the people out. 
Well, Crystal, you, you're not the only one recently to sing the praises of uh, Rick Harris. Um, my, my guest back in episode 438, Kathy Miller and Shannon Carls, um, uh-huh. both um, brought up and, and made reference to Rick Harris and Chris Harris as being mentors. Yeah. Chris Harris has been a guest here on the podcast um, okay. before. So, um, oh, Crystal, this has been really, really good to have another discussion, a conversation with you. Uh, our guest again has been Crystal Davis. You can learn more about her and her work at her website, The Lean Coach Inc. .com. If you go in the show notes, I'll link to uh, the podcast and um, other other things that, that Crystal does. So uh, and anything else that you want to share with the audience before we wrap up, Crystal? Not particularly. Um, I just want to thank you for having me on and thank you for always being an advocate, you know, in uh, a number of different ways uh, to me and, you know, also a mentor and teaching me things about business. So uh, Anytime that I have an opportunity to share with you, I I will make time to come on. So thank thank you, you Crystal. It's a two-way street. I learn a lot from you and uh, appreciate you being here as a guest. So (laughs) thank you. Thanks again. All righty. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.